A subscription to the China Africa Project's email newsletter is like getting a daily China Africa intelligence briefing delivered straight to your inbox every weekday at 6 a.m. Washington time. You'll get an in-depth review of everything going on in politics, trade, tech, culture, and more. And we don't just focus only on Africa, but also the Middle East and what China's doing throughout the Global South. Try it out free for 30 days. See if you like it. After that, subscriptions are just $7 a month for teachers and students and $15 a month for everyone else. Sign up today at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina, America Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we are now about, our best guess is about 10 or 11 weeks away from the upcoming forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit. This will be FOCAC, and that is going to be held sometime in December. I think the best guesses right now is that it'll be held in the first week or possibly the second week of December. They've been pushing this thing back uh, as far as possible, but they're going to. We're getting all the assurances that it's going to happen this year. But I think they're trying to figure out a way to make sure that they do this as a hybrid online offline event. We don't have a lot of details right now, but we are starting to see some of the outlines of the different tracks that are going to be discussed at FOCAC. So there's a lot that's going to be focused on trade and agriculture and technology. Even a lot of security discussions are underway. In the run-up to it, we've seen even a lot of engagement on the academic and think tank side. So that, that energy is starting to build up. One area which we have heard nothing about and was important in the previous FOCAC is on maritime issues, and particularly on the issue of distant fishing. And that's a little bit troubling, and so we're going to come back to that topic today. We have talked about this, uh, our regular listeners will remember over the past couple of years, quite a bit about what's been going on off the coast of West Africa. We've had some conversations about the tilapia issue in Kenya uh, but we're coming back to it today, and we want to try and see, get a sense of the situation so that in the event that there is an opportunity to get these issues back on the FOCAC agenda, there is still time to do it. Let's quickly bring everybody up to date on the situation in Ghana right now. Ghana is a flashpoint for the Chinese distant fishing issue, and so it's an area where environmental groups like the Environmental Justice Foundation have been focusing a lot of attention they just came out with a new report in August, and it was includes a survey of fishing and coastal communities about the impact of industrial trawlers on the situation in Ghanaian coastal waters. And let's just say that the situation is not good at all. Small-scale fisheries employ around 107,000 fishermen, which is about 80% of all fishers in Ghana. Also, Ghana has the highest fish dependence in all of Africa, providing about 60% of the entire animal protein intake. And the vast majority of industrial trawlers in Ghana 
although they are operating under a Ghanaian flag. So don't be confused that just because a vessel has a Ghanaian flag doesn't necessarily mean that it's owned or even operated by a Ghanaian fisherman. They're controlled and financed by distant water fishing companies, mostly based in China. So that's the connection for our discussion today. Kobus, it's a little bit depressing to have this conversation yet again, because it doesn't seem like there has been any progress whatsoever on this issue since the last time we spoke about this last year. Yes, um, no, I completely agree. There's also we, we should also keep in mind that that in African development circles, there's been a, a lot of discussion about blue economies. You know, it's one of this, these kind of perennial themes that keep coming up: um, the need to to maximize blue economies and to and to diversify them, particularly because so many African countries are, you know, have coastal communities that are dependent on fishing, and they would many of these governments would also like to expand into into some form of fish farming but what we're seeing on the ground is that you like uh, you, they don't even have time to kind of to, to try and diversify these economies these economies because they're being wiped out so quickly by mass by mass fishing by foreign by foreign fleets um, most notably from china so it's a very difficult situation well let's talk about the human part of it so most of the time we talk about what happens on the maritime side and on the ecological side But today we're going to be focusing on the impact that distant fishing is having on coastal communities on shore. And there's a new report, as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, by EJF, a human rights lens on the impacts of industrial illegal fishing and overfishing. And it was written by Socrates Segbor, who's the Ghanaian fisheries program manager at the Environmental Justice Foundation in Cape Coast. Also, Professor Wisdom Akpalu, who is the dean of the School of Research and Graduate Studies at the Ghana Institute of Management and Public Administration. And he's also the director of the Environment for Development Initiative and also the past president of the African Association of Environmental and Resource Economists. Wisdom and Socrates, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Wisdom, let's start with you. You have been in this business for quite some time. You've been watching the trends over the past, say, 10, 15 years as to how the distant fishing fleets are impacting coastal communities and the maritime ecosystems. It doesn't seem to me, looking at the situation, that things are getting any better. Why don't we start with an assessment from you about where we are today with the distant fishing fleets and the impact on Ghanaian fishing communities? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, in fact, uh, you've asked a very, very important question. And uh, over time, things have gotten really worse, uh, moved from bad to worse. Uh, the fisheries are overcapitalized. We have too many fishermen currently landing fish because there are fewer and fewer job opportunities for them. Uh, in fact, if you look at the trend, you see that each canoe catches less and less fish. And besides the fact that there are more and more fishermen or more and more people going into fishing and catching less and less fish, uh, we also have this phenomenon where uh, we have these distant water fleets uh, invading the spaces of uh, these small-scale fishes, uh, catching what they are not supposed to be catching. And these are uh, small pelagic species of these uh, anchovies, uh, sardines, and mackerel that are supposed to be landed or caught by uh, uh, the small-scale fishes are being caught by these uh, uh, fleets and then uh, sold back to them. And 
uh, it has become so severe that over time we have seen that uh, uh, this has worsened the situation for the small scale fishers. They are getting less and less catch, and this is having direct impact on their livelihood. Uh, their rate impact on uh, income generation. Uh, in fact, uh, people are even dropping out of school. Kids are dropping out of school simply because their parents cannot afford to pay their fees uh, uh, and also because they are not able to earn decent amount of uh, income uh, to meet their obligations as, as parents. So this is becoming a very serious issue for coastal communities uh, in, in Ghana. Socrates, um, as Eric mentioned at the at the top of the show, um, you know a, a lot of these a lot of these overseas fishing fleets come from China, um, and there's been a lot of controversy around Chinese fishing. But obviously, the Chinese are not the only ones fishing, and 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 West African communities have struggled for a long time with European overfishing, um, with a lot of fleets coming from from places like Spain. Um, so, can you give us a breakdown of like who are the main you know, where, where do the main kind of groups of, of these foreign fishing fleets, where do they come from? Are they all from China or like what is the mix of, of, of other countries involved? First of all, I want to say that that brilliant report was written by the EJF team and of course with uh, Professor Balu. As you also rightly stated, uh, a lot of these distant fleets are Chinese owned. Um, when we come to Ghana, we have mainly uh four sectors you have what we call the artisanal which is the small scale then you have the inshore which are also wooden vessels with inbuilt engines and then you have the industrial vessels and then you have the tuna the issues we are talking about uh mainly refers to the industrial sector and their impact on the what we call the small pelagic fishery or the people's fish which is the mainstay as uh, Professor Paul rightly said of uh, over 140,000 artisanal fishers in Ghana. Now when we look at the industrial sector it is predominantly Chinese. Yet to see any other uh, country owned or sponsored uh, any of the current fishing fleet. The tuna is mainly uh, by other European countries and all that, which are not having that much impact on these small pelagic. So, with reference to what we're talking about and the collapse of the small pelagics, we focus in mainly on the industrial, which is predominantly Chinese. I'm yet to encounter any other country. Wisdom, help me understand something here because I'm I'm a little bit perplexed by by this conversation. This is the same conversation that we've been hearing about for at least 10 years. There's no secret that the Chinese are operating distant fishing fleets off the coast of Ghana. There's no secret that they have, in many ways, corrupted, perverted, abused, however taken advantage of, however you want to describe it, the flag-based system in Ghana by operating Ghanaian fishing boats when they're not technically allowed to do so. President Nana Akufu-Addu did a really good job at trying to go after the Galamse in the illegal mining on shore. But yet he seems to be paying no attention whatsoever to what's going on offshore. Why is this issue continuing to be a problem when everybody knows that it is a problem? And as you've pointed out, the stakes now cannot be higher given how much of the Ghanaian population depends on a healthy 
maritime blue economy. What is going on here? Okay, you've 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 uh, said it all. I think the political will, the will on the part of uh, the politicians, not only uh, the current administration but even the past administration, to really see this as a problem and tackle it he- head on, is completely missing. But why? But why is it missing? That's what we we know it's missing because no action has been done. Why is it missing? Yes, I think a a couple of reasons could be alluded to. Uh, One is that uh, it could be sheer ignorance that uh, perhaps they do not believe that they do not believe the stories coming out or the facts uh, coming out uh, of the fisheries. Because to me, the fact that the fisheries will collapse in a foreseeable future if nothing is done, that fishermen will go to sea and come back with no fish. The livelihoods of over perhaps 3 million plus people that are dependent on these fisheries will now be at stake. It's something that one cannot deny. So one is the political will, but uh, related to that is perhaps ignorance. And also related to that may be the fact that there is so much rents. You know, when it comes to natural resources, People feel natural resources are free and one can extract as much rent as possible and those resources will continue to be there. So, so much rent that is being extracted and distributed around and here I'm, re- I'm referring to the issues of corruption. So, the, the point is that uh, it could simply be that most of these politicians or most of the politicians are completely ignorant or they don't just believe what is coming out from all these uh, studies and reports that are being published. Recently, there was a program to put observers on board to make sure that the troll vessels actually target species that they are supposed to be targeting. Somehow, one of the observers, which is who is allegedly in possession of some information about some illegalities, disappeared at sea. And as we speak now, Nothing has been, I mean, no, no, no one has been held accountable. So it appears the forces that are behind these illegalities are able to get away with it because they, are, they know big people and, uh, you know, they relate to big people in a way that, you know, they, they, they all benefit. So it's very difficult for, uh, for them to bring some of these injustices uh, to book. Can I try and push you a little bit? So you've given us three different options. What is it? What do you think it really is going on? Is it corruption? Is it ignorance? What's the main driver here? Just so we can really understand what the crux of the problem is. I think it is, it is largely corruption. I think it's largely corruption because although we can, I, I believe there could be some element of uh, ignorance and there could be some element of uh, mistrust for the information coming out of uh, all these studies that are conducted, for which I have done a bit of work myself, I think what is actually downing the political will is corruption. Because those who are engaged in these illegalities are very organized, and they even go to the extent of uh, supporting activities uh, that they are not supposed to be supporting. So. Uh, I believe that ignorance, uh, I believe that corruption is one of the main driving force. And if, you know, we have to tackle this problem, we have to try to do away with corruption within the industry. And, and this problem, to a large extent, will be addressed. 
So corruption, again, is a, is a main driving force uh, why these problems haven't been solved. And it has gone through several political uh, administrations, not only one. Socrates, the, um, the report mentions that the fisher, because of the, the yields have fallen so much, um, the, the, uh, the small-scale fishers are increasingly having to, to, to go further and further you know, to, 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 to make their catch. And that also brings them into contact with, with these kind of factory trawlers, these massive industrial trawlers. And uh, several of them have, have, have um, that you, or the report lists uh, many of these fishers reporting equipment, their own equipment being broken, um, and other kind of bad kind of interactions between between them and and these industrial trawlers. Can you talk a little bit about those kind of interactions? Like, what are some of the problems that are cro- cropping up where they both are fishing in the same waters? As figure, uh, as fishers begin to fish uh, beyond. Um, the what we call the Asia exclusive zone, which is uh, the six nautical miles or the thirty meter depth. You know they begin to have. Be, of course, they are exposed to challenges that they are not usually used to. As in, uh, they are. You know these fishers do not go to sea mainly with uh, life jackets and other safety equipment. So the further they go, the more exposed they are if there are any accidents. Now, because these trawlers are not just fishing off the IEZ, but we have documented cases where these industrial trawlers are fishing within what the, this IEZ, which is the initial exclusive zone or the zone reserved for the artisanal or the small scale fisheries. Now, as they come in and they encounter these, that is where we have more of the conflict. So you have some fishers, uh, the gears are being destroyed uh, by the propellers of these industrial vessels. There have been incidences where canoes have been uh, destroyed by these uh, industrial vessels, even though in a lot of cases, these fishers have marked their gears and therefore it is expected that these trawlers should see this you know so within the IEZ we have encountered this uh these encounters between the canoes and the industrial vessels and of course as they begin to fish beyond this IEZ uh there is more of such encounters because of course that is where you have more of the trawlers also fishing as they are licensed to land what we call the demesa or bottom dwelling uh, fish. Like you said, they are fishing further and they are fishing more days because they are landing lesser and lesser fish. A recent report by an ad hoc committee, which uh, was which is called the Science Scientific and Technical Working Group, you know, which had projected in 2017 of the collapse of this small pelagics or the people's fish in three to seven years. You know, this rep- the recent report in 2020, based on the recent data in 2019 indicated that uh, one of the species, which is the Sardinella uh, orita, which is also the mainstay of that Sardinella fishes, the report indicated that that uh, stock is collapsed. And that is, uh, e- is evident in the landings of these uh, canoes at the various landing beaches, as they are constantly report that they are 
not catching these fishes or they are not seeing it and of course they having to spend more days and also go further. So Socrates, you have painted a rather grim picture for us and let's add on top of this the rapidly changing climate and the impact from climate change. We're seeing this in many parts of the world. So already we have fragile ecosystems and fragile coastal communities and then put on top of that the pandemic plus climate change, and we have a very dangerous situation. I mentioned a statistic that was in your report at the top of the program that Ghana depends on fish for animal protein more than any other African country. So if the case is, as you say it is, that fishermen are bringing in smaller catches, they're having to go out farther, there's less protein coming ashore, and the climate is having an impact, obviously COVID's having an impact in terms of the movement of goods, what happens to people? What's this? What's the situation like now? Huh. So we are saying uh, there is a catastrophe just looming. In, uh, in what we are talking about not just a national security, but even we're talking about nutrition. We're talking about increasing poverty. We're talking about malnutrition in uh, amongst even uh, children and even pregnant women. You know, we're talking about increasing uh, social vices, not just along the four coastal regions, but even inland. This is why, together with the scientists and other CSOs, we have been pushing government to enforce the necessary measure to address the current declining uh, of the stock and begin to put in measures to rebuild the stock. If that is not done, then these issues, these uh, things I've highlighted are likely to happen. Yesterday, I was in a meeting um, with some fishers. And, um, you know, Ghana currently uh, recently implemented uh, a closed season. That is, we closed the fishery to allow the fish to spawn and replenish what has been taken out. So the small-scale fisheries observed a one-month close season in the period of July together with the industrial trawlers and the industrial trawlers observed an extended close season in August which is supposed to be the bumper season uh, uh, in the fishery even though we haven't experienced this bumper in cold in the last two or three decades. Now when I engaged the fishers, the question I asked them was, the trawlers are not fishing currently and we are not seeing the landings of what we call the cycle, that is the illegal transit fish between the industrial trawlers and the canoes. Why, has, why are you guys continuing uh, using light fishing and other, are you indulging in other forms of IU? The question, they, the, the answer they gave me was, these guys have already destroyed their fisheries. So even though they are not fishing now, we are not even seeing the impact of the close season and other measures. So therefore, we have no choice than to try and continue in the IU to try and catch the last fish because we need to feed our families. Yeah, that, I was a bit disheartened by such statement even though I tried to convince them that uh, even though the situation is that part, we all need to put away with the IEUs 
and adopt responsible fishing and then hopefully within next two three four five years we may see signs of recovery so that this picture shows the current deplorable state of ghana's fish stocks and as you may be aware ghana was recently issued a second yellow card by the eu and this yellow card the main reason was because ghana has not been able to take the necessary measures to address IEUs. and in the card it says the shortcomings uh, included illegal transshipment at sea of large quantities of undersized fish um, in, in deficiencies in monitoring control and surveillance of the fleet and a legal framework that did not align with recent international obligations that Ghana has signed to. You know, so these were the issues that informed uh, that yellow card sanction from the EU. And these are the factors that have contributed to the current deplorable state of the fishery. So we are all calling and trying to work together to salvage or save the little fish that is left. Wisdom, um, it's it strikes me that that as you mentioned before, there is you know there doesn't seem to be a lot of a lot of government energy around this issue, um, you know, because of corruption and, and ignorance and other issues. Um, however, we we've seen the Ghanaian government has been quite proactive in in, in going after illegal Chinese mining, um, you know, the Galamse um, small scale gold mining. Um, so why do you think Alamse is so much there's so much more popular kind of pressure on the government and and so much more energy within the government to go after Galamse and so little energy you seemingly in the government to go after illegal fishing and seemingly also very little or somewhat less you know kind of public pressure and, and public kind of campaigning around this issue in Ghana I think it is uh, one of the reasons is that uh, Galamse is kind of more visible. And uh, the international community also uh, had a role to play. You know, people see the destruction that comes from Galamse very clearly because it's on land. Uh, and then uh, the international community, people outside of this country, uh, showed interest. Uh, it comes with destruction of rainforests, uh, which, uh, of course, has implications for climate-related uh, challenges. And also, of course, destruction of communities and water bodies, etc., which has uh, some of the problems have some global dimensions to them. So I will say that because of the external pressure, that might be one of the reasons why government has been quite proactive addressing it. But overfishing is quite, you know, hard to 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 tell, especially if you are not. Uh, very conversant with, uh, uh, you know, the biophysical dynamics of uh, fisheries management. Uh, in fact, if you talk to an average Ghanaian about uh, overfishing and uh, stock depletion and all that, uh, you realize that their level of understanding is quite uh, low. Uh, even those within the judiciary who are supposed to be prosecuting uh, illegal fishing activities uh, also don't have that much knowledge about the implications of some of these activities. For example, uh, illegal fishing activities, eventually when they are, people are caught doing illegal fishing activities or are engaging in IUU, 
the buck stops at the minister and the minister has the, that entire prerogative of deciding how much those who are violating some of these regulations should pay so there are instances if you do the computations you find out that people catching uh, trawlers or vessels catching juvenile fish will be made to pay about nine percent of uh, the average meaning if you put the minimum maximum fine together you divide it by two on average they pay about nine percent of that so it becomes so lucrative to engage in some of these illegalities so i believe that uh, it is because of the international attention that galamse received which psycho fishing unfortunately hasn't received that is one of the reasons why uh, it is easier for the government to uh, to do that because uh, uh, otherwise you get the backlash from the international community and all that so i think that that is one of the main reasons or that is perhaps the main reason why uh, uh, it, it received that attention so the will would have been the same if not because the international community is bringing some pressure on government to do the right thing now, if I recall from a couple of years ago, and correct me if I'm wrong, the fishing ministry did, in fact, exact some fines on Chinese vessels and trawlers. And those Chinese trawlers, actually, if I remember correctly, just ignored the penalties and didn't pay them. And nothing really happened to them. They're just, they keep going. So it seems like even when the government does take action, it's not following up with any meaningful enforcement. And at the end of the day, I guess, it's a little bit frustrating to watch this because if it's a governance question, then really at the end of the day, this is a Ghanaian problem more than it's a Chinese problem or more than anybody else. Socrates, tell me, you, you know, what you think of that. Yes, what you are, what you are saying is, 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 is very true. And um, we recently released a, a report uh, highlighting the revenue loss uh, as a result of our inability to ensure that fines imposed to these uh, trawlers are fully paid. Because if they are fully paid, not only does it serve as deterrent to other fishers, but also it, it becomes a source of uh, revenue to the country. And because of uh, this low sanctions or, and their inability to pay, we said that Ghana was losing almost between 14 to 23 million dollars annually. You know, if we were to really enforce these, then these fines, uh, these monies or revenue could be coming to the country and support, of course, our other activities. But unfortunately, this is what is happening uh, within uh, the sector. So even though um, with the recent yellow card, we are beginning to see some actions uh, from the government. Uh, it is still early days yet to, to really ascertain uh, its readiness to fully address the issue. Wisdom, I'm going to give you the last word. When we come back to you next year at this time, what's the situation going to be like? Do you think there will be progress? Do you think... The Ghanaian government and the Chinese government after FOCAC are going to see the wisdom of what's going on. They're going to take action. They're going to restrain the distant fishing fleets. Or do you think that the trend that we've been seeing over the past 10 years will just further intensify? What's going to go into your crystal ball now and tell us what we should expect in the next one to two years? I am not, unfortunately, I'm not very optimistic. I hope so, but I'm not very optimistic because uh, we've seen this trend 
coming for some time now. We know that as a nation, we are not able to meet our protein requirement. We still import about 60% of the fish that we eat. We know that fishermen are catching less and less fish. And we know that the cycle activity is ongoing. They are landing at our beaches. They are even, uh, you know, so emboldened. They are formed committees, associations. Uh, we know all this. Yet the will from our political leaders is obviously very low because of rent-seeking behavior among uh, those who are put in charge of uh, regulating the fisheries. I, I, I wish that I could tell you now that the situation will change and that you know efforts will be put in place to ensure that uh, these activities are stopped, but I'm not sure. There was a time I did a presentation and I proposed that instead of putting human beings on board who are either bribed or intimidated, we should have video devices planted on uh, trolleys so that we can monitor them from afar. And I showed with some co computations or some calculations that uh, the benefit could exceed the cost by 21 times. And when I did this presentation, I was almost uh, attacked by somebody working for uh, the Fisheries Commission. And then they said, well, we don't need this. We don't have to know what is going on in the vessel. I said, well, if somebody is doing something illegal and this thing is affecting your stocks, why wouldn't you want to know what is going on, uh, going on on board, at least just to have a check? He said, no, 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 we don't need this. So it appears that the will, even from those who are working at the Fisheries Commission and all these other uh, government institutions, are very weak. They, don't, they really don't. Some of them are simply afraid to lose their jobs because... People, those who are their bosses or ahead of them may punish them for doing the wrong, right thing. Uh, if you talk to those at the Fisheries Enforcement Unit who go there and arrest people who violate the regulations, they will tell you, they will give you their own stories about how sometimes they arrest people for illegalities only for them to receive calls to allow uh, them to go uh, scot-free without being even prosecuted or punished or anything. And as, as long as uh, the risk of detection, even if it is there, but the severity of punishment is very low, uh, crime becomes profitable and this business will continue to go on. So I'm not very optimistic. Uh, I don't see that political will uh, coming and I only hope that voices like yours will help make the difference because at the end of the day, if as uh, my, my friend uh, Socrates rightly said, if we lose the fisheries, People are going to migrate. They are going to go to Europe. They are going to the social problems that we will encounter will go beyond the borders of this country. So it will, it is going to be a challenge not only for Ghana but for the rest of the world. Uh, and I believe that if you look at uh, the statistics on intention to migrate uh, among those living in coastal communities, it's quite high. And if they have the options, they will do that. Mm -hmm. They will be engaged in drug trafficking, gun running, etc. All this uh, child trafficking, etc. So all these crimes are coming. And it is a collective effort. It should be a collective effort on our part, both the global north and south, to ensure that these problems are curtailed. Otherwise, we will all live to bear the consequences. So voices like yours are laudable. And we hope that they will bring these uh, uh, problems uh, to light so that and bring pressure to bear on people who are benefiting from these uh, uh, problems, especially our politicians, so they can live up to uh, their expectations. 
Well, we hope with that message gets onto the FOCAC agenda in December. We hope that voices like yours are going to be able to speak to Chinese stakeholders, be able to communicate the the dangerous situation that we face, and that the Chinese actually live up to their own action plan. Because in the previous FOCAC action plan, uh, there was a commitment to to crack down on distant fishing, and they clearly haven't done that. So hopefully people are listening to this and they will proactively take action. Again, I, I, Wisdom, I, I share your pessimism. I don't think things will happen, but nonetheless, we do have to, uh, to help raise awareness of it. The report is a human rights lens on the impacts of industrial illegal fishing and overfishing on the socioeconomic rights of small-scale fishing communities in Ghana. It's a very important report written by the Environmental Justice Foundation. EJF, by the way, has been consistent over the years in focusing on this issue and doing the kinds of research with people like Socrates. And Socrates Segbor is a Ghana fisheries program manager at EJF in Cape Coast. Thank you, Socrates, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Professor Wisdom Akpalu is the Dean of the School of Research and Graduate Studies at the Ghana Institute of Management and Public Administration, and also the Director of the Environment for Development Initiative. Socrates, if people want to find out more about this, they want to educate themselves about the issues, where can they go online to get more information? Yes, so they can easily go onto the EJF uh, website, and we have a lot of all our publications uh, there. So that is just ejfoundation.org. And then there is a report uh, section where they can see all these uh, great documents that we have published. And we'll put a link to those documents as well as to the EJF Twitter handle also in the show notes. Wisdom, Socrates, thank you again for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having uh, us. Kobus, once again, we come back to the question of governance. And when we think about who is accountable here, it's very, very easy to blame the Chinese and Europeans and foreigners for this. But at the end of the day, I think both of them were very clear that the core of this problem is governance in Ghana and the lack of accountability and the corruption and the fact that people are not enforcing laws and rent-seeking as wisdom Use, use the development word for it, which is basically just flat-out corruption. And, and to me, it's, it's a little bit frustrating that we've been having this conversation for almost a decade now, the same conversation over and over again. The only thing that's changing, though, is that the tipping point is becoming closer. So remember when we talked about this four or five years ago, they said, well, in a few years. Now, experts like Wisdom are saying, you know, maybe next year, maybe the year after, And that's assuming that climate change doesn't really accelerate to the point where it messes things up much faster than anybody could have anticipated. So to me, we're facing a very dangerous situation. I remember in our last conversation about this, you warned the same thing that Wisdom warned, that this is not going to remain a Ghanaian problem for very long. That when people are hungry, they will start moving. And now they're first going to move throughout West Africa. So we talked about last time that they're going to be on the road to Europe. They may not actually go to Europe, but they're going to go somewhere in order to feed themselves and their families. And that's going to be highly disruptive as well. So the fact that nobody's paying attention to this is just outrageous. Yes, it's it's really distressing. Um, I you know I, I agree with you that that definitely people are going to start migrating, and and what we're seeing is increasing kind of pressure from particularly from European countries 
to to you know it's similar as, as we're seeing in uh, as 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 we saw during the Trump administration in the U.S. like attempts to try and and stop migration flows before they reach Europe. Um, you know, so so there's been there's been attempts to try and kind of to to put in kind of structural different kinds of structural barriers keeping migrants on the African continent by by making it harder for them to kind of move from country to country or even within 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 countries in some cases so i fear that that this that as this crisis exacerbates there's going to be kind of political pressure within Europe to to crack down more and more on African migration, which we we're already seeing in Europe. And with that, there's going to be, be you know we're going to see a lot more disruption within Africa um, as as all of this kind of pressure and with it funds land on African governments. And we're seeing we'll see increasing kind of like barriers to movement imposed on Africans. Well, the United States has launched a campaign against Chinese IUU, which is, I think it's international unregulated and underreported fishing or something to that effect. And and it's really to bring awareness to the damage that the Chinese distant fishing fleets are having, not just in Africa, but in South America and around the world. I think it's just as important that naming and shaming and the same aggressiveness that the Americans are bringing to the Chinese distant fishing fleet, that they go after the Ghanaian government. We don't do this in development worlds, but they deserve to be named and shamed. They deserve to be called out for what they're doing, for the harm that they're causing. Aid and development money and investment should be tied to that accountability. Because all the garbage talk that we hear about democracy and accountability and all the stuff coming from the U.S., we don't live those values. And this is so important. So when you ignore this, you ignore everything else falls apart because if people are hungry and you're causing instability, then who cares about anything else? And I just I wish that there would be more consistency on the part of the international community not to go so gingerly with African governments. They deserve to be called out for this for this corruption. It's just I'm, I'm, it just it pisses me off to no end that it's easy to go after the Chinese. Yes, the Chinese can handle that. Fine, I'm not worried about that. But I think we need to go after African governments just as hard. Yeah, I agree with you. I you know, I I mean, I'm just fed up with it and nobody talks mm, about it that way. Mm. It's all this kind of, you know, gingerly stepping around because it's not politically correct to call out the corruption in African governments. Yeah. But in development circles, if I said this on a webinar, on a public webinar and you know, with a bunch of development people, I think they would be horrified by if I said it. You know, people would be clutching their pearls all over the place. But it's true, and it's the same frustration that African people have towards their own governments on so many levels. So you would be aligning yourself with African publics, which is where we should be, not with the elites. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with you. I guess, I guess the like one one of the reasons why the development people might be upset would be the the kind of what what would be the next sentence, you know, kind of so. So what I mean is is what are the tools open to to these international to, to the international community to to actually to to actually put pressure on the Ghanaian government? You know what the tools are? I think. Let me sorry. Let me just answer that question. The tools are President Hishilema. There are people like President Hishilema out there. We find them, we support them, we give them the resources they need. He answered the call of his people and the youth, and we give them the support. And that's why I find it just outrageous, outrageous that Biden didn't meet with Hishilema to respond to the demands of youth. Because when you poll young people on the continent, 
Just like young people everywhere, environment comes up as a major, major concern. So I think to me, it's, it's back the people like Kishilema, and there's a lot of them. Give them the resources to be able to, to mount the campaigns to be able to succeed. Well, you know, kind of here you see that some of the complications that comes out of the Biden administration's tendency to to, to pit autocracies, autocracies against democracies, right? Because in in any kind of any any kind of um, accounting of democracy in in Africa, Ghana has to count as a as a big, vibrant democracy, right? Um, and and so the the kind of it, it becomes and that, that that division makes it much harder to talk about the lapses that happen within democracies, and it also makes it much harder to to talk about how to help the people of autocracies um you know so so it's it's, it's one of those situations where where on uh, you know kind of compared to so many other african countries you know seen from seen from a, a, for example a kind of a, a from that kind of democracy focused u.s lens ghana's doing great right kind of compared to compared to many african other african countries so it be it, it it's again a situation where those those kind of tools to put pressure on the on the Ghanaian government is are, are largely lacking, and the, I think the other the other kind of thing that that I think many of these development people will say, um, and I think with 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 some some reason is that is that the more the more this kind of pressure comes down on African governments, the more they they kind of you move them towards China, um, you know, um, which you know I, I think there's a lot of holes to pick in that argument, um, but I think that is an argument that many will make. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. And we're certainly seeing that play out right now in Ethiopia, where the United States has enacted sanctions and, you know, and they get sucked into this China Western kind of dynamic that's there. But one would just hope that the Chinese themselves would see the wisdom in, in cracking down on their own distant fishing fleet. So what China's top diplomat Wu Peng did, and he announced a couple of weeks ago when he said that the six Chinese mining companies in South Kivu in the in the Eastern DRC would be punished for the environmental violations and they would be prosecuted back in Fujian and Zhejiang province. One would like to see that happen now with the distant fishing fleet and other actors who are violating environmental laws in, in Africa. There is a norm now. And he even laid a benchmark in that tweet that he did a, a couple of weeks ago when he said, we will pursue this in other places. I don't remember the exact language of it, but it was basically, we're not going to tolerate this. Let's hold the Chinese to account for that. Let's hold Director General Wu to account for that. That when these injustices appear, that he will take action the same way that he did presumably in South Kivu. Now, the problem is you you know, repatriate those Chinese violators back to China and no one knows what ends up happening to them. So the question of accountability becomes quite murky. So maybe we're back right where we started from, depressed as we can possibly be, but right where wisdom was, where he's not too optimistic about this. The only thing we do know is that it's going to be a problem for a lot of people beyond Ghana. That is for sure. Maybe maybe one of the places to start is to, to start focusing on the remember like a, a few a few years ago we did a we didn't uh, I'm not blanking on his name apologies everyone but um, we did an interview with an amazing um, like fisheries journalist who um, who mentioned that that a lot of these like what, what the, the economics behind the, these kind of Chinese like long distance fishing fleets is that they can only really make profit if their fuel is subsidized and they they 
with frequently their fuel is subsidized by provincial governments within China, um, because because the, that fisheries kind of play a part in their in their kind of bottom line, um, and so maybe the one the one thing to go to go after is the fuel subsidies. Yeah, it's easier said than done, though, as as he pointed out, and again, I'm I'm forgetting his name, an amazing journalist, but the fact that. Uh, it's so decentralized and there isn't one place to go after because it's at the provincial, at the municipal, it's at the corporate level. The subsidies are very complex to go after. And bear in mind, outsiders have not had a lot of luck at curtailing Chinese subsidies in other sectors. So uh, it's not entirely clear what kind of pressure outsiders could bring to bear on the Chinese for subsidies, especially now when China is in this defensive crouch against the United States and the international community because of all the other issues that are going on. So it's hard to see that fishing would go up to the top of the priority list ahead of some of the other more contentious issues. And I so, mean, it's not, it's not only that, it's obviously not only China doing it, you know, kind of, we're, we're not, we're not even talking about Japanese whaling. About you know? Europe, so. Japanese whaling, and also the Europeans as well, who have uh, distant fishing fleets, not at the scale of what the Chinese are doing. That was, that's been the message we've been getting, but they are also active in this. And it takes away from their moral legitimacy to be able to go after either African stakeholders who are not enforcing laws or the Chinese themselves who are subsidizing the fleets with with fuel subsidies. So it's a mess. It is absolutely a mess. Let's leave the conversation there, depressing as it is. Sometimes we leave on a more optimistic note, and sometimes, like today, it's on a more depressing note. Uh, But hey, listen, this is the kind of thing we talk about every day on the site, and I also want to bring everybody's awareness to our new Patreon community that we've just launched patreon.com slash China Africa Project. We've got three tiers for folks to get involved with, $5, 10 and $20. At the $20 level, by the way, you get a free mug with your uh, with your support there. We're going to start holding monthly Zoom calls for folks to have discussions. We also are going to offer one-on-one briefings. You'll get uh, all sorts of cool things with uh, with our Patreon community. So we hope that you'll check it out. We're also super grateful that you support the show. We really appreciate it. It really helps us do the work that we're doing and create the independent journalism on China and the global South that hopefully you're finding useful and enjoyable. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. We'll be back again next week with another episode of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. Project.com.